Uh, David Matas is uh, from uh, Winnipeg, uh, was born and educated there, but was also educated at Princeton and Oxford. Uh, and he has uh, a very distinguished career in the human rights law and has been an, indeed an ardent defender of human rights um, on behalf of Canada, also in his private practice, on behalf of other groups, has done work in various parts of the world, and uh, including South Africa, now China, and other places. He's been a senior legal counsel for the Bnei Brit, and um, so he has uh, uh, certainly um, the eminent a background that we would expect from a person who's going to tell us about the very important topics that he's going to address for us today. Thank you very much for being here, for taking the time to be with us. And thank you for ISCA for inviting me. Yeah. I, it's always a pleasure to see you, Miguel. Uh, I did actually teach her once, uh, a long time ago, uh, 72, 73, the Faculty of Law, Constitutional Law. Um, I was uh, Noah Lyon was a constitutional law professor on <coughs> sabbatical, and I was replacing him. And then I was replaced in turn by Roland Cooper, and Noah Lyon was. So uh, it's going back a few years. What I wanted to talk about today is anti-Semitism and, and, and the peace process. And I, I'm going to go on for a bit, so I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, but we've got this room till eight, so uh, I don't intend to talk till then. Uh, it, uh, anyhow, I'll, I'll, I'll start. And, and what I suggest is there's a link between anti-Semitism, between combating anti-Semitism and getting to peace in the Middle East. In my view, the failure to achieve peace between Israel and its neighbors is largely driven by anti-Semitism. Although many uh, commentators tend to focus on specific issues, my own view uh, is that these items are details which will take care of themselves if we get the big issue right, the need to combat anti-Semitism. Now, it does not take much of an effort to see the link between anti-Semitism and the unwillingness of Hamas to sign a peace treaty with Israel. All one has to do is read the Hamas website. The site is filled with classic anti-Semitic canards and calls for the killing of Jews. And I, I mean, I've talked on this subject before, and at one time I used to read out stuff on the Hamas website, but it's, it's pretty standard stuff, and you can well imagine what's there. Anti-Semitism, since the advent of the State of Israel, has adopted a new form, demonization of the Jewish state, and by implication the Jewish people, as actually presumed supporters of the supposedly demon state. Hamas exemplifies not just this more modern form of anti-Semitism, but as well the classical pre-Zionist form. Hamas could, of course, abandon its anti-Semitism, but then it would cease to be Hamas. Anti-Semitism is not just a regrettable attribute of Hamas, but rather something fundamental to its identity. Moreover, the anti-Semitism of Hamas is not so easily sidelined. Hamas will remain in control of Gaza for the foreseeable future. It's not democratic, it has seized control of Gaza by force, and there is no immediate prospect of its losing control. Furthermore, even though Hamas does not run free in independent elections, it appears to have at least some measure of popular support. There's every possibility that free elections in the West Bank 
could lead to a Hamas victory there too. Hamas is designated as a terrorist organization by Canada, the U.S., and the European Union, and with good reason. The Palestinian Authority, in principle, should do the same. The Palestinian Authority should ban Hamas. However, that is easier said than done. The terrorism of Hamas is directed against not only Jews in the Jewish state, but also those within its own community who oppose its views. If you are Palestinian and actively oppose anti-Semitism, then you run a grave risk of falling victim to Hamas terror. Uh, I should say I'm a refugee lawyer, and, I, and I, I've had clients like that. Terrorism silen silences opposition. It leaves the anti-Semitism of Hamas uncontradicted. If Hamas is popular, one reason is that its anti-Semitism is popular. If we want to erode the popular support that Hamas has in Gaza and the West Bank, then we, at least those of us who can exercise freedom of expression without fear of terrorist attacks, should combat its anti-Semitism. The same can be said of Hezbollah. In some ways, Hezbollah is an even more intractable problem than Hamas, because Hezbollah was established by the government of the mullahs in Iran and is its surrogate. Moreover, Hezbollah now forms part of the government of Lebanon. Hamas, though in control of Gaza, is at international law a non-state agent. The mullahs of Iran control the state of Iran, and Hezbollah is a lead force in the state of Lebanon. As well, Hezbollah has been actively involved in terrorist attacks, not against just Jews in Israel, but against Jews worldwide. It was the agent of attack of Iran in the bombing of the Jewish community center in the end, Buenos Aires, Argentina, in 94, which killed 85 and wounded 151. More recently, in July last year, Hezbollah's suicide bomber attacked a bus full of Israeli tourists in Bulgaria, killing five tourists and a bus driver and injuring two seriously. Dislodging the mullahs uh, from the government of Iran, or Hezbollah from the government of Lebanon, are not easy tasks. In both cases, they hold their positions by force. In theory, the government of Lebanon is democratically elected. Yet if Hezbollah did not have the weight of arms behind it the group now has, they would not be in the position in the government of Lebanon they now are. In addition to the weight of arms, a significant reason the mullahs and Hezbollah control state positions is popular support, the popularity of their anti-Semitism. Undermine the popularity of the anti-Semitism, the mullahs of Iran and, their, and of the region Hezbollah and their own holding power in the two states uh, of, of uh, Iran and Lebanon is undermined. Again, here, if we in Canada want to do something to get the peace, what lies in our power, practically, immediately, individually, is combating their anti-Semitism. Achieving a peace treaty between Israel and Hamas or Hezbollah or the mullahs of Iran is a conceptual possibility because of what those groups are. The problem, though, is not just Hamas nor Hezbollah nor the mullahs of Iran. It is also the Palestinian Liberation Front and the Palestinian Authority. The PLO and the Palestinian Authority have been playing a more sophisticated game than Hamas or Hezbollah or the mullahs of Iran. The PLO, to be sure, has had a terrorist past and has engaged in many terrorist incidents. It uh, tends to rely less, though, on arms and more on the politics of delegitimization. The PLO and the Palestinian Authority today attempt to destroy Israel not primarily uh, by force, 
but with war propaganda, incitement to terrorism, and incitement to hatred. Getting to peace with Israel means accepting the existence of Israel. Yet the PLO and the Palestinian Authority are embedded in an ideology, a vocabulary, and a worldview which prevents them from getting from there to here. There are ten stances or positions that the Palestinian authorities, or the Palestinian Authority and, and, and their friends need to abandon to make peace possible. What I'm doing is I'm giving sort of ten kind of pieces of advice to, nominally to the Palestinian Authority and their friends to, to get to peace. And, and the first one is, is stop referring to the Israeli presence uh, in the West Bank and Israel proper as, as foreign or alien uh, occupation. Referring to locals as aliens or foreign is not just mistaken terminology, it's also a form of bigotry. Israel used to exercise control over southern Lebanon, but then withdrew, as it later did from Gaza. Hezbollah, which replaced the Israeli forces, refers to all of Israel as occupied territory. Uh, and, and I quote here from Sheikh Hassan Nezrallah, where he said, I believe that Palestine is an occupied land from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. This is also true, uh, regrettably, of Fatah, who's the lead member of the PLO. Article 22, the constitution of Fatah, uses the phrase, the Zionist occupation in Palestine. That constitution was written in 65, before the Six-Day War, before Israeli presence in the West Bank and Gaza. The charge <coughs> against Israel of occupation of the West Bank has become a tagline. Indeed, the West Bank is sometimes even labeled the occupied territories, as if that were their real name. But it's not the real name. Uh, it's, it's rather a stereotype that has become ingrained. Under the Geneva Conventions on the Laws of War, when there's an occupying power, there's also an occupied state. Who, for the West Bank and Gaza, is the occupied state? The only possibilities are Jordan and Egypt. Before the 67 War, the West Bank and Gaza were under the control of Jordan and Egypt. International law tells us that any occupation which is the fruit of a war of aggression is illegal. By that standard, if Israel were in occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, as against Jordan and Egypt, before the peace treaties with those two countries, that occupation was legal. Jordan and Egypt were the aggressors in the 67 war, and Israel seized the West Bank and Gaza when defending itself against that aggression. It is wrong to consider uh, the West Bank as the occupied territory of Jordan uh, and, and, uh, and, and Gaza as the occupied territory of Egypt. Jordan and Egypt do not today lay claim uh, to the West Bank and Gaza. The peace treaties with Israel assert no continuing claim to those territories. If the accusation of occupation of the West Bank and Gaza is now made against Israel, it should have been made earlier against Jordan and Egypt, yet it never was. If Israel is an alien occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, occupying it against the Palestinian people, why were not Jordan and Egypt before Israel also not an alien occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, also occupying the territories against the Palestinian people? The only answer that would allow Jordan and Egypt to be distinguished from Israel is that Israel is alien or foreign to the region, but Jordan and Egypt are not. In other words, the distinction depends on big.
Okay, that's number one. Number two, settlements. Uh, so my second plea uh, to those who want to push the Palestinians uh, to police is uh, to urge them to abandon calls for the evacuation of settlers from the West Bank. It's common to hear that Israeli settlements on the West Bank are an obstacle to peace. <clears throat> Yet objectively, what's the problem? Why should the settlements be an obstacle to peace? Palestinian authority, to be sure, does not like them. They become an obstacle in the negotiations because the Palestinians have insisted on a freeze on the settlements as a precondition for returning to the negotiation table. However, all that would be necessary to remove that obstacle would be for the Palestinian Authority to drop the precondition. Why is it there? If one goes beyond the fact of objection to the reasons for objection, they are threefold. One is legal hocus-pocus, the misuse of terminology. The Geneva Conventions on the Laws of War prohibit transfer of nationals of an occupying state to the territory of an occupied state. Israel is labeled as an occupier in the settlement to transfer. As I've just argued, Israel should not be considered an, occupied sta an occupying state. In any case, the Geneva Conventions prohibit forcible transfer, not voluntary movement. The government of Israel has not forced the settlers, not even one settler, to move to the West Bank. The second objection to the settlements is the settlements create facts on the ground and divide up the Palestinian territory. <clears throat> this objection assumes that when we get to negotiate a two-state agreement, all the territory in which the settlements sit would become part of Israel. However, that's not necessarily so, not even likely so. There's never been, that has never been the negotiating position of Israel in the many negotiations which have already taken place. The third objection is that the settlements make the West Bank and Israel uh, an apartheid state, that settlers live apart from Palestinians and are surrounded by security. This form of criticism is a form of inversion. Settlers are attacked, they set up defense mechanisms, security barriers, and checkpoints. If the attacks stop, the self-defense uh, mechanisms uh, would also stop. It is closer to reality to accuse the Palestinian Authority of apartheid. Arabs live in Israel proper in safety. It's impossible for Jews to live in the West Bank except uh, under armed guard. When Israel pulled out of Gaza, the Jews who lived there had to be evacuated for their own safety. The very label settlements clouds the reality of the situation. They would be better and more accurately described as Jewish neighbors. The objection to the settlements is an objection to having Jewish Israeli neighbors. It is the objection to the settlements, not the settlements themselves, which are an obstacle to peace. The objection to the settlements is an objection in another form to the existence of a Jewish state in the Middle East. Anti-Zionists do not want the state, and they do not want the nationals of such a state in their midst. As of September 2012, Israel's population stood at about 8 million. The Israeli Jewish population made up about 6 million, or 75%. Arab population was about 1.6 million, or about 20%. As of July 2012, the West Bank consisted of about 2.6 million people. Of that population, the, the estimate of the settler population for December 2010 is about 328,000. Settler population is about 12.6% of the West Bank. 
So the Jewish population in the West Bank, both in absolute percentage terms, is considerably less than the Arab population of Israel. In principle, there's no reason other than the Palestinian intolerance of Jewish neighbors why the presence of Jews in the West Bank should be a problem. The existence of the settlements is a litmus test for peace, but not in the way commonly described. We will not get to peace when the settlements are frozen or gone. Even if that should happen, it would amount to appeasement, emboldening the anti-Zionists. We will get to peace only when the settlements are accepted, even welcome. Only when Palestinians are ready to accept Jews as their neighbors will there be peace in the Middle East. Number three, right of return. And my third advice to uh, people uh, urging the, uh, the Palestinians to come to the peace table is to reject the claim Palestinian right of return. This is an assertion of the right of Palestinians to move to Israel permanently from wherever they are, whatever their status is now in the territory in which they live, and whatever their status is or was in Israel. There is no such right. Canadians do not have a right to move to countries which have solitary, uh, sovereignty over the territories in which their ancestors once lived. Not an absolute right, nor a conditional right, dependent on the circumstances of departure. Neither do Palestinians. If one thinks of the, this right being asserted generally, what is it? It seems to be the right of descendants to move to the country that now has jurisdiction over the territory in which it, their ancestors once lived. Yet one could scour the international instruments in vain looking for such a right. Palestinian rights activists assert this right for Palestinians, but neither they nor anyone else asserts this right for any other group. The problem, though, is not just the assertion of a non-existent right. One also has to consider the population which claims this right. Palestinian refugees are not refugees in the standard international law sense in a variety of ways. Now, my overall text has these ten different points I'm trying to make, and now I'm going into this issue of the law of return, and within the law of return, I'm going to get into ten points. <laughs> so, uh, number one, uh, unlike other refugees, the status of Palestinian refugees is hereditary. Uh, there's a UN organization uh, focused on Palestinian refugees called UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Organization. And the UNRWA website states that the descendants of the original Palestinian refugees are also eligible for registration. Now, for, for non-Palestinian refugees, the, for the rest of the world's refugees, there's another UN agency, uh, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And the Office of the, uh, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees recognizes derivative status under the principle of family unity. A person who obtains that status as a child can maintain it after reaching the age of ma majority. However, unlike the uh, uh, UNRWA, the UNRWA refugees, that status is subject to individual determination of the person from whom the status is derived. As well, derivative refugees under the mandate of the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees uh, are subject to the, uh, the cessation and exclusion clauses of the refugee conventions when these clauses apply either to them or the persons from whom their status is derived. I'll say a bit more about these clauses later so you know what they are. Moreover, a person who has nationality of another country cannot obtain derivative status even if the family member has status. Okay, that, that's, uh, I mean, basically, well, uh, may, uh, maybe I should say a word about where I'm going here. Uh, the point I'm making here is, is 
this so-called population of Palestinian uh, refugees is they don't fit the standard refugee definition of varieties of ways. So, and what you've got is a non-existent right, and and the population which is asserting this right is artificially inflated. Um, secondly, uh, Palestinian refugees maintain their refugee status even if they hold nationality in another state. For every other refugee, including Jewish refugees from Arab countries, refugee status is a form of, a form of surrogate protection, where there is no state of nationality able or willing, able or willing to protect. A refugee, a uh, non-Palestinian, ceases to be a refugee if, according to the Refugee Convention, the refugees acquired a new nationality and enjoyed the protection of the country of his new nationality. And that's not so for Palestinian refugees who maintain refugee status even though they are nationals of states both willing and able to protect them. There is an estimated 2 million Palestinian status who have refugee status within UNRWA despite having Jordanian nationality. Third, uh, Palestinian refugees need only to have been living in, in British Mandate Palestine for two years, between 19, June 1946 and May 1948, to be eligible for UNRWA refugee status, or, or their descendants. They did not have to have nationality or even permanent residence in British Mandate Palestine to be considered UNRWA refugees. Other refugees must have nationality in the country where they claim a fear of persecution in order to qualify as refugees. Only those persons who have no nationality can claim refugee status against the country where they have habitual residence. And, and two years probably wouldn't even qualify as habitual res residence for most people. Fourth, the persons claiming refugee status who are not Palestinians are excluded from refugee protection if they have the substantive rights of nationality of the country in which they have taken up residence, even if they are not nationals. That is not the case for the UNRWA group, which has no such exclusion clause to Palestinians. There's approximately half a million Palestinian refugees in Syria who, according to the UNRWA website, enjoy many of the rights of Syrian citizens. Of course, I mean, the situation of Palestinians in Syria right now is not a happy one because of the civil war. However, there's no reason to believe that the situation after the war, no matter who wins, would be any different from what it was before the war. Fifth, uh, other refugees are considered to have local integration as a durable solution. According to the uh, uh, Office of the United Nations High Commissioner's Refugees, there's no formal hierarchy among the durable solutions. Resettlement and local integration have the same status as durable solutions as does voluntary repatriation. The UNHCR states, uh, particularly in post-conflict situations, it may take quite some time before peace and order are fully re-established. In such situations, refugees may be better served by local integration or resettlement. Palestinian refugees in the West Bank and Gaza are locally integrated. In principle then, because of that local integration, they should no longer need the aid of the international community to seek a durable solution. Uh, of, of the Palestinian population in uh, Gaza and the West Bank, there is an estimated 1.1 million uh, refugees uh, un with UNRWA status in, in Gaza and about 900,000 in the West Bank, for whom UNRWA provides assistance, protection and advocacy. The only population of refugees under the mandate of UNRWA who arguably do not have a durable solution where they now live is, is Palestinian refugees in Lebanon. UNRWA, in fact, reports that Palestinian refugees in Lebanon do not enjoy several basic rights. And 
In spite of that finding, the position of the government in Canada uh, is that Palestinian refugees have a durable solution in Lebanon, something I've learned again through my refugee practice. And in the case of El Bikai, which was one of my cases, uh, Palestinian refugee applied to come to Canada but was refused by the local Canadian visa office on the ground that he was receiving protection and assistance from UNRWA. Uh, the uh, Refugee Convention excludes from its ambit refugees who receive the protection or assistance of another UN agency. Now, uh, th this case went through several stages. In the first stage, the federal court set aside the decision by consent on the basis that the Refugee Convention exclusion about UNRWA had not been legislated in Canada. This refugee was then refused a second time uh, uh, because the visa office considered he had a durable solution in uh, Lebanon. And the challenge to the federal court on that uh, decision was unsuccessful. The fact that Hezbollah is such a significant force in Lebanon speaks volumes about the nature of anti-Zionism. The, the last thing anti-Zionists want to do is help Palestinians, because helping them removes an argument for the destruction of Israel. The very assertion of a right of return uh, is uh, an acknowledgement, and this is uh, the uh, sixth uh, point I, uh, I wanted to make, uh, is an acknowledgement that the conditions which led to the existence of refugee status no longer hold sway. Under the Refugee Convention, a person ceases to be a refugee as the circumstances in connection with which he's become a refugee have ceased to exist. A person cannot at one and the same time claim to be a refugee and assert a right of return. The two are incompatible. The fact that Palestine and UNRWA mandate refugees do both highlights the strange and artificial international regime in which these refugees are embedded. Palestinians who fled British Mandate Palestine during the war which led to the creation of Israel cannot now move to Israel. What stops them, though, is not the risk of persecution on return. It is rather the fact that the state of which they were nationals, British Mandate Palestine, has ceased to exist. The successor state of which they were the intended nationals has yet to come to being. This is not, though, a refugee problem. It is rather, at least for some Palestinians, uh, although obviously not for all, a problem of statelessness. The solution is the same as it was since always, since 47, the creation of an Arab state out of British Mandate Palestine in the West Bank and Gaza, living side by side in peace with Israel. Seven, uh, Palestinian refugees have been offered resettlement in Canada as a durable solution. Uh, this is uh, an element of Canadian history. Prime Minister Jean Chrétien in April 2000 in April 2000, Foreign Affairs Minister John Manley in January 2001 offered uh, to resettle Palestinian refugees in Canada. Canadian PLO spokesman Ahmed Abdul Rahman rejected the Prime Minister's offer, saying, and I quote, we reject any kind of settlement of refugees in the Arab countries or in Canada. John Manley, in response to this offer, was burned in effigy near the West Bank city of Nablus. Hussein Kader, ahead of the largest Palestinian Fatah militia now has said, if Canada is serious about resettlement, you can expect military attacks in Ottawa or Montreal. <laughs> Eighth, uh, every other refugee, in order to be eligible to seek protection from the international community, has to renounce armed activity. A, term, a determination has to be made about the genuineness of that renunciation, and again, this is something I'm heavily involved in with other refugees. Nine, Non-Palestinian refugees cannot be complicit in, in acts of terrorism. If they do, they're out of the convention. 
The refugee convention excludes those about whom there are serious reasons for considering that the person has been guilty of uh, acts contrary to the purposes uh, and, and principles uh, of uh, the United Nations and terrorism is such an act. That is not true, though, of Palestinian refugees. UNRWA has no exclusion or eligibility clause based on complicity in terrorist acts. And tenth, there are real Palestinian refugees, Palestinians who fit squarely within the United Nations Refugee Convention definition, but they are not refugees within the jurisdiction of UNRWA. They are refugees from the West Bank and Gaza fleeing Hamas, the Palestinian Authority and non-state extremists against whom the uh, Palestinian uh, Authority offers uh, no protection. Um, these refugees make protection claims in Canada uh, and uh, are, are often accepted. I see, I see them in my practice. If you are a Palestinian and you advocate in the West Bank or Gaza, what I am asserting here, you too could become a Palestinian refugee, a, a real refugee, with a well-founded fear of persecution. Anyone in the West Bank or Gaza who shows any sympathy for Zionism faces grave danger. So the claim of right of return is not only assertion of a right which does not exist, it is asserted in favor of a population whose numbers are artificially inflated. Palestinians are called refugees, yet in a myriad of ways they are not. Excluding the last group I mentioned, the, uh, the anti uh, uh, pro Zionist, anti-Hamas and so on, also artificially limits the numbers by excluding the ideologically opposed. A report by UN mediator uh, on Palestine in uh, 47, Count uh, Bernadette, arrived at a figure, 48, arrived at a figure of 472,000 Palestinian refugees. UNRWA estimates that right now, uh, there's five million Palestinians eligible for its services. So the population has grown by a factor of 10 in the intervening years. Now, as I mentioned to you earlier, the Israeli Jewish population is about 6 million, the Arab population 1.6 million. Introducing 5 million Arabs to Israel proper would change the demographic uh, composition entirely, putting Arabs in the majority with 6.6 .6 million people. Jews would cease to be a majority in what was supposed to be a Jewish state. That is the bottom line of the claimed right of return, destruction of the Jewish state through demographics. Number four. Okay, the, the, uh, the right of return uh, with that, those ten sort of embedded points was my number three, and now I'm on to number four uh, of my piece of advice to uh, the Palestinians to get to peace. And number four is, accept the, the wisdom and value of the Israeli security fence. The fence has led to a dramatic downturn in suicide bombings in Israel. The fence makes sense as long as the anti-Zionist terrorist threats persist. The General Assembly of the United Nations in December 2003 asked the International Court of Justice, or the World Court, for an advisory opinion on the legal consequences of the fence being built along the length of the West Bank to protect Israel from the infiltration of suicide bombers. I mean, that's not their wording, obviously, but the question. As the Israeli Supreme Court itself has noted, there are legitimate criticisms that could be made at the root of the fence where the disruption to the lives of people uh, affected by the chosen root of ways of security fine. The Israeli Supreme Court was the appropriate venue to question the root of the fence. Uh, the advisory opinion of the World Court was a different matter. There have been no requests for advisory opinions on the legality of anti-Israel behavior of Arab states, the Palestinian Authority, or the various anti-Zionist terrorist groups against Israel, nor are there likely to be. 
Israel is one of several countries uh, that, uh, with sturdy fences traversing contested territory. India has a fence through Kashmiri territory claimed by Pakistan. Saudi Arabia has a fence through territory claimed by Yemen. Turkey has a fence through territory claimed by Syria. There have been no requests uh, for advisory opinion on the, on the legality of these other security offenses, nor are there likely to be. The advisory opinion of the World Court in, in finding uh, that the fence violates international law denied the right of uh, self-defense against terrorism. It is self-contradictory, treating the West Bank and Gaza sometimes as having international status and sometimes not. For the purpose of denying Israel the right of self-defense, the court asserts that the West Bank and Gaza have no international status, arguing basically that the right of self-defense applies in an international context and not a local context. For the purpose of asserting that the West Bank and Gaza are occupied, the court asserts the international status of these territories. Though the court calls the West Bank at some points in the judgment Palestinian occupied territory, the court's application of the label occupied territory, the West Bank, depends on its having determined, which it did, that the West Bank was Jordanian-occupied territory. Judges uh, of the court, of the World Court, uh, are elected by the uh, General Assembly, that is to say, by the very body that posed this question. Members of the court are elected for nine years and may be re-elected. This system creates a bias when the question is biased. For the judges to have held that the Israeli security offense conformed to international law would have been rejecting the firmly held views of those who put them on the court and would have been dis uh, deciding whether or not they stay in the court. The General Assembly elects judges to the court uh, from candidates nominated from regional groupings. All of the judges in the court but one that made, decided this case uh, were nominated from states or regions uh, that had already declared the offense was illegal. Even the European Union, long before the advisory opinion, had expressed a view that the fence violated international law. For many of the judges, a pro-Israel opinion would have been a career-ending move. For one judge, the bias was not just institutional, it was explicit. Shortly before he was appointed to the court, Judge El Arabi of Egypt had expressed his personal view in a newspaper interview that the President of Israel in the West Bank and Gaza was an occupation and violation of international law. He further decried what he called the Israeli policy of establishing new facts, a criticism that was subsequently levied against the defense. Israel asked the court to remove the judge from the case, but the court, with only one dissent, refused. The defense is not just one of a wide variety of defensive tactics Israel has used to try to combat terrorism. It is one of the most anodyne. In the construction of the fence, as far as I'm aware, no one was died and no one was injured. Uh, there were all sorts of legal questions that the General Assembly could have asked the World Court about, about the behavior anti-Zionist states and the Palestinian Authority. The General Assembly could have asked, for example, what are the legal consequences of the failure of, of states and the Palestinian Authority to prevent the activities of suicide bombs directed against Israel? or to prohibit the incitement of hatred against the Jewish people and war propaganda against Israel, or to repress and eliminate terrorism, all its forms and manifestations against Israel, or to ban and seize the funding of anti-Zionist terrorist organizations, including, but not limited to, Hamas, uh, Hezbollah, Al-Aqsa, Martyrs Brigade, the Palestinian Popular Liberation Front. 
setting out the legal obligations of one side only to an armed conflict decontextualizes the acts decided under legal scrutiny from the armed conflict of which the acts form part. This is standard anti-Zionist fodder, treating uh, Israeli acts in isolation from the context so they're made to seem like gratuitous acts of cruelty rather than a measured response to worst sort of violence. Okay, that's what I want to say about defense. Number five, my, my sex, uh, fifth piece of advice deals uh, with disproportionality. And uh, advice uh, to those wanting peace in the Middle East is stop referring to Israeli response to terrorist attacks as disproportionate. There is no standard of disproportionality in the Geneva Conventions and the laws of war. The closest in a protocol uh, Israel has not signed is a requirement that responses not be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated, a very different standard. A phony standard of disproportionality leads armchair critics to second-guess every Israeli effort of self-defense in minute detail. The charge of disproportionality gives at least a passing nod to the notion that terrorists have done something wrong. Israel is re uh, recognized as having responded to an attack rather than just having acted spontaneously. But to anti-Zionists, the Israeli response is never dis justified because it is disproportionate to the act. The specific uh, form the charge of disproportionality typically takes is that Israel is condemned for violating the principle of proportionality found in the Geneva Convention of the Laws of War. But I, there's, uh, I, I've indicated it's not there in, in law. The, the charge has no basis either in law or in fact. The Geneva Convention simply doesn't use the word uh, proportionality in, in relation to armed attack. The, uh, the Geneva Conventions do not use the language of proportionality for good reason. Uh, uh, the language of proportionality is misleading because it suggests that a mere imbalance can violate the laws of war. And, and that's not a, a case. It's not simply of looking at a balance of two uh, different ways. What we do have, though, is this excessive response criteria. And the excessive response, I mean, you can violate the protocol if your response is excessive, but an excessive response analysis requires consideration of at least three criteria. What is the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated? The attackers themselves, for reasons of military security, may not wish to disclose what they saw as a military advantage anticipated. Alternatively, their claims of anticipation may be far-fetched, out of touch with uh, reality. Outside independent advice from military experts can tell us what military advantage from the contested operation might reasonably anticip be anticipated in the circumstances. Now, I mean, one of the problems, I mean, disproportionality is, 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 is problematic in terms of the fact that it suggests a balancing, but it's also problematic because it also suggests what should be balanced against what, uh, suggesting balancing the response against the attack. But what you're, if you're looking at excessive response, what you're comparing is not the response against the attack, but the response against the uh, military advantage anticipated. The second criteria for assessment of assessment, uh, assessment response is the alternatives available. Once there's a choice, and either option leads to the same military advantage, the option with the few civilian casualties should be chosen. If there's no choice offering the same military advantage as the option chosen, the matter is different. 
in that situation should be more difficult to establish a violation of the wars that has been committed. The third criterion is the use by the other side of the civilian populations to shield. The prohibition of the Geneva Convention, which prohibits discriminative attacks, also prohibits the use of civilian populations as shields. And the protocol states that the presence of a civilian uh, population uh, as a shield shall not be used to render certain points or areas immune from military operations. Charges of disproportionality against Israel are typically made without consideration of any of these criteria. No consideration is given to the anticipated, anticipated military advantage from the attack. The accusation that Israel has committed war crimes for responding disproportionately are made by non-military people without expert military advice. People who do not care about Israeli self-defense enough not turn their mind out how it could best be done fleeing accusations of disproportionality against Israel with abandon. Any judgment whether or not response is excessive has to consider what is on both sides of the scale, advantages and disadvantages. The loss to civilians balanced against the military advantage. Anti-Zionists are not prepared to admit there's anything on the other side of the scale, the Israeli side. As far as anti Zionists are concerned, all attacks against Israel are justified, so for them, any response whatsoever seems disproportionate. How Israel could best defend itself is far from the minds of anti-Zionists. So these anti-Zionist charges of disproportionality are not true judgments that the Israeli response is excessive, but rather typical anti-Israel propaganda looking only at one side of the ledger, the side that makes Israel look bad. Number six in my litany of advice to the peace seekers is do not pretend that there's only one refugee population created in 48 by the UN decision to divide British mandate Palestine into an Arab and Jewish state. Except the reality of the Jewish refugee population from Arab states was even larger than the Palestinian refugee population from Israel. The uh, there has been a difference in willingness of all states, including Canada, to provide a durable solution outside the territory of flight to the two different refugee populations. It is that difference which should end. Support for the rights of Palestinian refugees, who, but for the fact they were Palestinians, would not be refugees, is anomalous enough when one compares Palestinian refugees with the global refugee population. The contrast is even more striking when one compares Palestinian refugees with Jewish refugees created by the same conflict. Uh, now, uh, as I mentioned, uh, uh, Count Bernadette, uh, uh, Folk Bernadette, estimated there was uh, 472,000 Arab refugees created uh, by the conflict, and, he, and he, he expected, when he gave that number, that the number would rise to slightly over 500,000. Jews forcibly displaced from Arab countries because of the conflict, number 820,000. Uh, and there were an additional 50,000, 57,000 Jews forcibly displaced from Iran. I mean, that was much later when the, the, the Shah came, uh, the Shah was overthrown. Uh, moreover, Jews uh, forcibly displaced from Arab countries in Iran were real refugees and not artificially defined ones. The Office of the United Nations High Commission for Refugees took the petition position that these victims, and I quote, may be considered prima facie within the, in the mandate of this office. Um, one of the High Commissioners for Refugees was a Japanese woman, Sadaka Ogata, and she was an academic and a researcher, 
and, uh, and she was relatively recently a high commissioner, and she actually opened up the refugee archives, the uh, uh, UNHCR archives. Uh, and uh, I went into them with Stan Ehrman, who was working with me on this issue, and, and we found the, these documents, well, that particular document, uh, 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 recognizing uh, Jewish refugees from Arab countries as, uh, as refugees. And, and these documents had never been made public before. When it comes to advocacy of Palestinian refugee rights, however, redress uh, for Jewish refugees typically is forgotten. The focus on one refugee population, the exclusion of the other, when both were generated by the same conflict, is an indicator that pursuit of respect for rights is not the primary objective. Okay, number seven. Uh, my seventh. Refrain from slurring Israel as an apartheid state. Now, I've talked about that a bit already, but let me say a bit more about it. Um, basic to apartheid was the denationalization of blacks. Because they were black, an allocation of nationality and state created Bantustans, their homelands. Blacks assigned to Bantustans were subject to influx control laws and pass laws. The object of apartheid was to denationalize all blacks to assign every black to one of ten Bantustans. Blacks were forcibly removed from where they lived to their designated Bantustans. Israel has not since its inception taken away vested Israeli citizenship of even one person on the basis of identity. Israel has not created designated territories within its borders to which it has forcibly removed its own citizens who are different. Indeed, when one starts to look at what apartheid really was, any comparison between Israel today and South Africa at the time of our apartheid becomes ludicrous. The facts which critics of Israel marshal in support of the charge that Israel is an apartheid state are facts common to every state. Israel chooses its citizens. Israel has a nationality law. Some people under that law are citizens, others are not. Some can become immigrants, resident citizens, others may not. Uh, those who are or can become Israeli citizens can enter and remain in Israel. Others who have no right of entry must stay out or leave. Citizenship and the right of citizenship can be inherited or passed down from parents to children. Every state in the world, including Canada, my knowledge, has principles like these. Calling Israel an apartheid state because it distinguishes between its citizens and non-citizens means every state in the world is an apartheid state. Uh, one can ask the same about any slur against Jews or the Jewish state. Why is the blood libel made against Jews? Uh, the answer, of course, is anti-Semitism, hatred of Jews. What matters so much is not the specifics of the slur, it's the fact that it is a slur. One slur loses traction because it becomes at the public, to the public at large, so obviously silly and refuted anti-Semitic, just move on to another slur for acceptance. With the older anti-Semitic myths, the hate mongers seek power in a state where Jews are a minority by trying to solidify around themselves a, a coterie of hatred drawn from the majority. In the case of newer anti-Semitism, centered on the Jewish state in which Jews are the majority, the aim is destruction of the state. Israel and Zionist slurs aim to win public support for dismantlement of the Jewish state. Through traditional anti-Semitism, demonized Jews as individuals, as a faith, as a community, the new anti-Semitism demonizes Jews as a people. The Jewish state is charged with every crime known to humanity. Uh, the Jewish people are indicted, actual or presumed abettors of these imaginary crimes. Apartheid is a South African, African's language word meaning the apartness to which anti-Zionists refer when they charge Israel with apartheid is not a separation amongst various Israeli citizens. 
it is an apartment, an apartness between Israelis and non-Israelis. To be specific, the apartness to which anti-Zionist refers to separation between Israeli citizens on the one hand and the Palestinian residents of West Bank and the Gaza on the other. Those who say Israel is an apartheid state are saying that Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza are being kept apart from Israel. Yet Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza are not citizens of Israel. When Israel keeps Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza out of Israel, it is acting no differently from any other state which keeps out non-citizens. Giving Palestinians in the West Bank uh, a right of entry into Israel would allow entry in, uh, into Israel of a mass of population different in religion, language, and culture from the majority, ending the character and identity of Israel of the Jewish state, and determining the right of the Jewish people to uh, self-determination. In South Africa, the ending of apartheid did not mean the end of uh, South Africa. It did not mean introducing a huge po uh, foreign population with a different language, religion, and culture, uh, a population larger than the local population. Yet that is what those who say Israel is an apartheid state are advocating. The attack uh, on Israel as an apartheid state then is another way of saying that uh, there should be no Jewish state, but a larger state, including the West Bank and Gaza, where Jews are in the minority. It is another way of saying that there's a right of return, that Palestinians have a right to move en masse to Israel and render Jews a minority within the current uh, boundaries of Israel. The advocacy of Israel as an apartheid state is not just a, an advocacy against the existence of Israel, it's also an advocacy against Israeli self-defense. What are the primary exhibits in the case of Israel as an apartheid state? They're, they're the checkpoints and the security barriers. Yet the checkpoints and the security barriers exist because of terrorism. Uh, if terrorist attacks, suicide bombings against Israel stop, the security barrier and checkpoints would come down. Checkpoints exist at every airport in the world for the same reason, to prevent terrorism. No one anywhere else claims that the existence of these checkpoints is akin to apartheid. Criticizing Israeli checkpoints or security barrier uh, means saying that Israeli self-defense it is is illegitimate. Apartheid. Uh, number eight. My eighth piece of advice is acknowledge that the uh, the anti-Israel boycott is what it is a, a form of anti-Semitism. This boycott is a modern equivalent of the old Nazi boycotts of stores with Jewish owners. It is common to hear calls advocating a boycott of Israel produce goods in the West Bank. And, and of course, so the concerns about the boycott over, uh, overlap with the concerns I have about opposition to the Jewish settlements. Um, suggesting that Jews should not live in any area because they're Jews is just plain wrong. Suggesting that, that what Jews produce should be boycotted because you don't like where they live is also plainly wrong. The labeling occupation and settlements with the added notion that the settlements are illegal turns an innocent fact, the presence of Jews in the neighborhood, into an international crime. The purpose here is to lead the easily beguiled and startling conclusion that human rights and international require the ethnic cleansing of Jews. This ethnic cleansing is the ultimate objective of anti-Zionists, no matter in what language it is closed, clothed. Number nine. Uh, my ninth and second last piece Acknowledge that the Jewish people have a right to self-determination, and the existence of the State of Israel is expression of that right. Except that destruction of the State of Israel would be a violation of the rights of the Jewish people worldwide. 
The right of self-determination of a people does, does not always mean a right to statehood. However, it coalesces, coalesces into a right of statehood where the rights of a people are violated in so gross and flagrant a manner that to expect the people to remain under the government of the perpetrators would be inhumane. If ever a people has earned through its suffering the right to statehood, it is the Jewish people. Throughout history, racism and its victims were, are found everywhere, but in scale and scope, the Holocaust was unprecedented. Self-determination of a people serves two purposes. Uh, one is democratic self-government. The other is to protect, preserve, and develop the people's identity. One reason the existence, uh, for the existence of Israel is cultural. Zionism asserts the right of the Jewish people to preserve their cultural identity. Before World War II and the creation of the State of Israel, Jewish communities in the diaspora had a vibrant cultural life. But that life was filled by the Holocaust and the displacement of Jews from Arab countries. Though the Jewish people survived the Holocaust, the Ashkenazi shtetl culture of Europe and the Sephardic communities of uh, Arab countries are gone. In a secular world, many Jewish people do not know the ins and outs of the Jewish religion. However, it takes no more than a passing glance at Judaism to realize that it is integrally bound up with the land of Israel. Before the Holocaust, there was a lively debate within the Jewish community worldwide whether the creation of a Jewish state was necessary for the survival of the Jewish people. There were many who argued that the Jewish community was better off promoting respect for human rights wherever Jews could be found, that the creation of a Jewish state would lead uh, to a movement to expel Jews to that state. The Holocaust ended that debate. In retrospect, the failure to create the State of Israel much earlier was a tragic mistake of epic proportions. The Holocaust, though it left some Jews alive, completely extinguished uh, Jewish settled life in Europe. Now, after the Holocaust, the, the global Jewish community is a remnant, a tiny minority who depends on the existence and flourishing of the State of Israel for the preservation, protection, and development of their cultural identity. A person who particip participates in the cultural life of the Jewish community uh, in the diaspora, no matter where in the diaspora, has to be struck by the centrality of Israel and Israelis to every aspect of that community's cultural vitality. The survival of Israel today is necessary not only to protect its Jewish residents from those who would drive Jews in the Middle East into the sea, it is necessary as well for the cultural survival of the Jewish people. Israel is all that rests between Jewish cultural survival and oblivion. The end of the state of Israel would be a continuation of the Holocaust, a rejection of its human rights legacy, and an act of cultural genocide against the Jewish people everywhere. Number 10, and my last piece of advice. Refrain from endorsing what is euphemistically called the one-state solution. The incorporation of the present state of Israel into a larger Arab-majority state. Embrace instead the two-state solution, a predominantly Arab state and a predominantly Jewish state living side by side in peace with each other. It is impossible to refer to a solution, any solution, without considering the problem. The Nazis euphemistically referred to the Holocaust as a final solution. And what was the problem? The problem was the Jewish problem. But there was no Jewish problem, only a problem of anti-Semitism for which the Jewish population bore no responsibility whatsoever. Referring to a Jewish problem was a form of blaming the victims for their victimization. The final solution was the Nazi way of addressing this blame. And what is the problem for which the one-state solution is supposed to be the solution? If you ask advocates the one-state solution that question, they would likely answer the, the problem is the existence of the State of Israel. 
Yet the existence of the state of Israel is no more a problem now than the existence of Jews before the Holocaust was a problem then. The real problem in both cases is bigotry. That has to be the target of our efforts. Well, those are my ten points, and I'm now actually going to state a conclusion. And I thank those of you who've lasted this far. Uh, the, uh, the first victims of promotion of hatred are the promoters themselves. Anti-Zionism has led Palestinians into a frenzy of hatred against the Jewish state. The, the Palestinians uh, reject in substance the possibility of their own state in a futile attempt to destroy the Jewish state. If all Palestinians accepted all the ten propositions, proposition I, I, I gave you here, there would be peace overnight in, in the issue of boundaries or the status of Jerusalem or whatever. I mean, they could all easily be solved. Contributing to peace in the Middle East is not, at least from this perspective, something that needs to be left, though, just to the Palestinians or the Air, or, 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 or Israel or people in the Mid Middle East. Combating, uh, contributing to peace in the Middle East is something every one of us here can do. Rejecting the ten, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the ten contrary propositions that I was arguing against here, uh, the, these, these uh, ten sort of uh, positions about boycott and apartheid and so on, they envenom the dispute and get us further from peace. Ten peace. Endorsing and advocating uh, the, uh, the propositions I presented to you, in my view, is an individual contribution each and every one of you can make towards peace in the Middle East. And that's my thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Professor Bauer. Uh, Mr. Matas, I would like to, uh, first to, to congratulate you for the quality of your presentation, very well informed. And I would like to ask you a question. You said basically that anti-Semitism is at the root of a peace process which is not a peace process working properly. I believe we all agree with that. But don't you believe there is another problem, that even people who are by, certainly not anti-Semites, nice people and average people in the Western world are convinced that there is no Jewish people. They believe there is only a Jewish religion. And if there is no Jewish people, therefore, what do we need a state? And they don't say it in order to attack Israel. They say it because it's what they are heard everywhere. I know that it's written in the chart of the PLO that there is no Jewish people. But a lot of non-Jews truly believe that Jews are just uh, uh, synagogue-going people. And the typical Jew is a Hasid with a Steimer. But there is no Jewish people, therefore the problem is not only anti-Semites and the ten, the ten Commandments you gave to the PLO, but a, a mass uh, education movement to explain to people that there is something called a Jewish people. I would like to have your views on that. Uh, well, I mean, the concept uh, of a people uh, is, uh, I, I would say, uh, people are self-defined. That uh, a people exists if, if the individuals who form that group consider themselves a people. Uh, the, I mean, if people is the mirror opposite of racism. Racism is other defined. People do not define themselves as a race. Others define them as a race. With people, it's the opposite. I mean, I've heard the same argument about Palestinians. People say the Palestinians are not a people. Uh, but I, I would say 
If they want to call themselves a people, that's exactly. The Palestinians decide whether they're their people, not me. And, and, and for the Jews, it's the same. Now, I accept there's some Jews that reject the Jewish people, don't consider them part of the Jewish people, uh, and, I mean, and they may even be religious. I mean, some of them are religious. Fine, that's their choice. I mean, uh, being part of the Jewish people is a club to which you are free to join or not, as you see fit. Uh, I mean, with certain limits. But uh, the, uh, And the answer to these well-meaning people is, you know, it's not your decision, it's ours. Uh, the the will to be a people makes the Jewish people a people, makes the Jews a people. Yeah. Yes, your reference to the anti-symmetry or or the asymmetric response uh, brings up immediately the thoughts of the Rachak massacre. That that's the immediate response, and of course the later response of, of NATO that was uh, catapulted later. Very bizarre that. Uh, NATO's response ultimately, just as the Rajak massacre escalated the number of civilian casualties that occurred uh, subsequent to the, the initial acts of, of the Kosovars, the NATO response also accelerated. Um, but of course, we say we say that all these are justified. How can we quantify a response given the many factors? The Geneva Convention cannot cannot possibly. Uh, consider all the perspectives and, and weigh a global response. Uh, how how is it the authority of the or what authority could possibly the Geneva Convention have to advocate on on this issue and decide what a nation or a people should do to, to defend themselves? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a good question. I, 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 I should say, I mean, this is an area which maybe you could have told me in the introduction. I, I, I've written and talked a lot about it, uh, and uh, I've written a book on this called Aftershock, uh, Design of Antisemitism, and, and I've given, like, on, on not all ten, but almost all of the ten uh, points, much longer individual papers, including the one on disproportionality, and, and I didn't want to get into, uh, I mean, you know, what I said about disproportionality was lengthy enough as it was, but uh, the, uh, uh, I mean, the laws of war are there for war. They're not there for peace. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and they're meant to be adopted by soldiers fighting a war uh, on the ground. Uh, so they've got to be clear, straightforward, uh, readily intelligible, accessible. They're not there for armchair quarterbacks afterwards to go over every bullet that was fired. Uh, and, and, I mean, and that's part of the problem with the concept of disproportionality. It requires this kind of freezed second guessing, uh, and you know, I, you uh, it, it may give the critics of Israel some comfort to be able to do that. But realistically, if that's what the laws of war mean, they'd be thrown overboard, and we wouldn't have any laws of war. So the the whole kind of fine judgment that people uh, use with this proportionality is, I, I mean, it's not only. Uh, unfair to Israel, which is the point I was trying to make here, it, it's also inconsistent with the whole concept of the laws of war, which if you want to find an elaboration of that, <laughs> I've gone into much greater detail. <laughs> yeah, I'm Melvin Niederhofer. I'd like to ask a question that's 180 degrees away from where Professor Bauer started. I'm in the middle of reading a book that Mohammed exists by Spencer about a year ago. And it analyzes the Quran, the Hadith, etc., all the documents they could find. And most 
records for documents only start 50 to 100 years later, and many of them were written for political reasons. So now, Egypt signed a peace treaty with Israel for economic reasons, Jordan signed the treaty for economic reasons, but if you look at Hamas and Hezbollah and Fatah, etc., they claim to be Muslim, they quote parts, political parts, of the Quran, etc., that say, kill the Jews, kill the infidel. If they keep saying this every day, could they ever possibly come to a peace agreement if their constant refrain five times a day is, kill the Jews? Well, I, I, no, I, I mean, in fact, that's something I said in my talk. That, I mean, well, there's not going to be a peace treaty with Hamas. There's not going to be a peace treaty with the mullahs of Iran. There's not going to be a peace treaty with Hezbollah. Because their anti-Semitism is integral to their identity. I mean, they'd have to turn into, the, I mean, the people who are now part of Hamas could quit Hamas and change their views. That's always possible. But, uh, but it, uh, these entities would cease to be what they are if they entered into peace treaty with Israel. I, I, I mean, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's necessarily Islam. Uh, because Israel, like the grand, like uh, I mean, it's one of the great religions of the world, and it's subject to a variety of interpretations, and it's got uh, texts that uh, can be uh, interpreted in different ways. And and the particular one about uh, killing the Jews actually isn't in the Quran; it's in one of these commentaries which some uh, Islamic scholars reject and others adopt. Hadud, uh, uh, I think it's called. The uh, and uh, so. I, you know, with my view with uh, the Palestinian Authority, the PLO, that you know maybe if they accept these ten points uh, I, I'm making, we can get the peace. And, and I wouldn't say it's inconsistent incon with the nature of the Palestinian Authority to adopt them. But with Hamas and Hezbollah and the mullahs of Iran, I think you know what we're doing in Canada is the right response. They're, they're terrorists. You ban them. You jail them. You marginalize them. Uh, you're not going to win them over, and you're not going to sign a peace treaty with them. I mean, if you did it would be meaningless, because they turn around and try to violate it right away. <coughs> just wondering the, the origin of anti-Semitism. Well, who, who you be? Just real quick, real the, quick. The origin? No, because, I mean, well, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you the origin, real quick. No, but you understand me, because like, uh, using that word in, in, in a, a kind of, and I'm sure, you know, there's probably 20 different interpretations. I mean, do you really believe that there's an origin? There is an origin. Okay, go ahead. It's, it's uh, the descendants of Joseph and the pharaohs, the pharaohs of Egypt. The descendants of, of, of Joseph were many. Uh, and, and one of the, I mean, originally Joseph came uh, to, to Egypt and he was a friend of the court and, and, uh, and, and favored. Uh, but uh, uh, eventually there was a pharaoh who knew not Joseph uh, and, and saw uh, all uh, these Jews there. And he said, Ms. Farrell said, these people are not our people, and we cannot trust them. That's it. Okay, but, but that came, I mean, why, why did Farrell believe that? I mean, why? Yeah. I, I mean, you're not asking what, what's the origin of anti-Semitism. You're asking why are people bigoted? Why are people racist? There's a difference between bigotry and, and anti-Semitism. It's, it's, it, it, well, anti-Semitism is, is bigotry directed towards the Jewish people. Okay. That's all. Hatred or... or yeah. Uh, I mean... You know, hatred is a basic human emotion. Uh, you know, why do people hate? I, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, why are people people? <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the word was coined, I believe, at the end of the 19th century by a German.
Well, yeah. I mean, there is a more specific answer than that. There, there's a guy named Willem Marr who actually, uh, I mean, he said, uh, you know, right now there's no uh, Semitism, uh, and there never really was. But Marr, and, and people don't actually call themselves anti-Semites, but uh, Willem Marr actually formed a league of anti-Semitism because he believed he was combating Semitism. And basically, his view of Semitism was uh, preventing the world Jewish conspiracy, preventing Jews from taking over the world. Right. And, and so he formed this League of Anti-Semitites to prevent Jews from taking over the world. And, and that's the modern origin of the term. But it, it's, it's, I mean, it, it no longer, I, I, I mean, it's just morphed into becoming uh, bigotry that's directed specifically against Jews. It has a much larger meaning than that. 